Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, the genesis of this book, one and only, The Untold Story of On the Road. And then I will read a little bit to you from the book. And we can do questions and answers afterward about Kerouac or the book or anything you want to do. I'm not sure this is where I want it to be, but I'll just get it in a little closer. That, that's OK. That's good. Yeah, no, that's fine, I think. That's good. Um, also, I did. Um, I published a book two years ago about Jan Kerouac, who was a wonderful novelist. I've got a few with me. They're hard to get because I published them, but if you're interested, see me afterward. So the way this book got pub uh, came to be, uh, some of you know that I wrote the book on Jack Kerouac, Memory Babe, and about, well, in the late 70s, I started traveling all over the country um, with a tape recorder, interviewing anybody I could find who knew Jack Kerouac, and I ended up interviewing over 300 people, uh, tape recording their memories, most of whom are dead now. And one of the people that I interviewed was Luann Henderson, who was uh, Mary Lou in On the Road. And very few people got to talk to her because she had really dropped out of the beat life um, by choice, although she continued to see Neil, Neil Cassidy secretly, even though she was married to other men. The relationship with Neil Cassidy continued all her life. Um, but she was a, a club owner. She owned a, a jazz club in North Beach. And people didn't, they knew her as this wonderful, beautiful, charismatic, blonde woman who owned a jazz club. And she knew the mayor of San Francisco, Mayor Moscone, and she knew Bill Graham the promoter, and she knew uh, many, many people uh, in the music business, and they all loved her because she was so charming and charismatic. Nobody knew that she had been Mary Lou, and that she was the basis of this woman character in On the Road. But anyway, I, I, I'll read a little bit about how I managed to find her. Uh, but I had the interview uh, with all these other 300 taped interviews, and then I put them all at UMass Lowell, which was Kerouac's hometown, Lowell, Massachusetts, for public study. And um, in 1994, Jan Kerouac filed a lawsuit against the Sampas family uh, for having stolen her father's estate by forging her grandmother's will. And as soon as that happened, um, John Sampas, Stella's brother, who inherited the stuff, went over to the library and demanded that the library lock up my entire archive. He had no legal right to do that, uh, but Lowell's a small town, and the Sampas family has a lot of money, and they swing a lot. Kerouac Estates valued at $30 million now and generates, you know, $5 million a year. So they swing a lot of weight in that little town, and uh, they closed my archive for 11 years. I had to litigate to get my archive open again, and I finally won. Um, and that, during that whole period, I was not even able to get access to my own interviews. I could I was not even allowed to listen to or, or you know, see the transcripts of my own interviews. And so when I finally got them back in, in, in about 2007 or 2008, it was very fortuitous because um, this was a period when Walter Salas was trying to get funding to make the movie of On the Road. He, uh, well, Francis Ford Coppola had bought the rights to On the Road from the Sampas family, the Crooks, um, as we call them, um, back in 1978 or so. And, but, uh, and Francis Ford Coppola struggled for years and years because he couldn't get anybody to write a workable script. He paid many, many people lots and lots of money. Probably a dozen different people got gigs to write the script. And every time, he, including Russell Banks and uh, Barry Gifford and uh, his own son, Roman Coppola, and every time he'd get the script, he'd throw it in the garbage can. This is not filmable. And it's a difficult book to film because it, those of you, most of you here have probably 
probably read on the road. You know, it's really just a lot of cross-country back and forth trips. It doesn't lend itself very easily to a, to a, a movie plot line. And um, anyway, Coppola was rather in despair about this. He'd spent a whole lot of money and, and over a 30-some, 35-year period and wasn't getting anywhere. Uh, and then in 19, uh, sorry, 2005, Walter Salas had a huge hit with the movie um, Motorcycle Diaries about Che Guevara, and the Brazilian director. And uh, supposedly Coppola said, well, if he can do motorcycles, he can probably do cars, too. So he uh, negotiated the rights to Walter Salas, and um, then Salas uh, began traveling around the country to try to, because he's a Brazilian, to try to familiarize himself, because uh, you know so much of on the road is about America. Um, and he, he came to see people. He came to see me, and we spent a lot of time together. Um, and I showed him all my photos and tapes and stuff. Uh, but he couldn't get funding. And he struggled for five years. No, no company wanted, no American company wanted to back a movie of On the Road, which to me is very interesting since the book by now is regarded as an American classic. It wasn't, you know, when I started writing my book in 77, it, Kerouac wasn't taught anywhere, but I mean, now he is taught everywhere and the book is considered a classic. And yet no American company wanted to venture uh, the money to make the movie. And then in 2010, Walter Salas uh, got a major international director's award at the San Francisco International Film Festival. And within two or three days of getting that award, uh, MK2, a French company, tele uh, sent him a telegram and said, we will, we will finance your movie to the tune of $25 million, which is not a lot of money for a major mo motion picture. Uh, but Walter Salas forged ahead. One of the reasons he was able to do that was because a lot of actors, name actors like Kristen Stewart, wanted so badly to be in this movie that they agreed to work for scale. I mean, to work for the lowest possible salary. And um, so he, he said to me at that time when he got funding, that um, he wanted to do a boot camp for his actors because he had evidently done that with uh, the movie on Che Guevara, Motorcycle Diaries. He, these again were young actors who didn't know much about Che Guevara in the 60s and he had them live in a little, rev a little town in South America, live with revolutionaries before they filmed the movie and it worked out very well. The actors absorbed a lot of that. And he said, well these are again young kids. Kristen was only 20 years old at that time. They don't know anything about the beats. The beats are ancient history. So I want to do a boot camp uh, where they're going to be immersed in the whole experience, and I'd like you to be the first drill instructor. Would you do that? And I said, well, yeah, of course. It's wonderful. And so they flew me up to Montreal in July of 2010, and I was to work with Kristen Stewart and Sam Riley, the British actor, the movie Control, um, uh, about Joy Division, great movie. Um, it was playing Jack, and uh, Garrett Hedlund playing Neil Cassidy. And um, one of the things Kristen wanted to do was to hear Lou Anne's real voice, because the character of Mary Lou is, is based on Lou Anne. And so I said, well, I just got these tapes back. I had just won the lawsuit and, and said, I can, I can bring you, the, and I paid myself then to digitalize them, so they because they were deteriorating on those old metal cassettes. So they're now, uh, fortunately, on CD. And I, so I brought the CDs up. And this is when this amazing thing happened, that um, I started playing the CD, the first CD, it's an eight-hour interview that I did with Luann. Um, and I started playing it for Kristen, and I realized that within a few minutes, other people from, from the set, other actors were gathering around, and people, tech people were gathering around, and wardrobe people were gathering around. There was this huge, pretty soon there was a huge semicircle of people around the, the tape recorder, and I'm seeing like a mesmerized look on their faces, and I, and I started really listening to this thing, because I hadn't listened to it in 35 years. And, and when I did the interview, I was in my 20s, and a lot of it had gone over my head. I mean, this was a, a woman at the time who was 47 who had had amazing experiences, and I was a, a good Catholic boy from Chicago who had not had a lot of life experiences yet. Um, so I started listening to it, too, and I'm thinking, like, wow, I don't remember this. She's talking about Jack crying in her arms and stuff, and um, uh, and then, you know, I, at some point, I, I remember feeling a little embarrassed that this was going on so long, and I, I said, maybe I should turn off the tape recorder, and everybody yelled, no, don't turn it off. We want to hear every little piece of it. And I had ended up having to play the full eight hours uh, of the interview for them. And by that point, I realized myself that this, this was an amazing interview because this woman really had given the whole backstory of On the Road. She really told, she told what really happened um, behind the scenes of the novel. So when I got back to the Bay Area, I called up um, 
Brenda Knight, who had done a landmark book called Women of the Beat Generation back in the 90s. And she has her own press now called Viva Editions. And um, she listened to some of the tapes and agreed that she'd like to make a book out of it. And because it's a you know, 35,000 word interview. But I didn't want the book to just be the interview with Luann. I, I thought at this point it should be the whole story of her life. And Luann died, uh, ironically, just before the movie, uh, before the funding came in for the movie, because she really wanted to see a good movie about her uh, life. But her daughter is still alive, Anne Marie Santos. And so I, I uh, worked with her daughter to. Um, make this the whole story of Luann's life as well as um, the, inter the whole interview is in the book. But, uh, uh, you know, Luann did have an interesting life. I mean, she, here she was at 15. She marries the wildest man on the planet, Neil Cassidy, drags her to New York where she meets Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, all these great young writers. Then later on, you know, drops out of the whole beach scene, becomes a single mother, runs a jazz club in North Beach, develops a heroin addiction, gets herself off of the heroin addiction. I mean, it was a, her life to me is a fascinating life uh, way beyond her connection with the Beats. So that's the, the story of the book. I will um, read a little bit from the introduction. Uh, when I first started doing a book tour with this last November, I was very fortunate to have um, Anne-Marie with me, Luann's daughter, because she sounds so much like her mother. And she, was, she would do beautiful readings from, uh, uh, from her mother's interview. Um, but I, I do want you to hear a little bit of the interview, so I'll probably end up reading a little bit of it myself, just so you can hear a little bit, or else I'll get Lee Harris here to do Luann's voice for us, since he's a world-famous voice interpreter. But <laughs> you think you could do Luann tonight? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but just, I'll, I'll... I can do William Burroughs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he does a great Burroughs, but anyway. So this is from the introduction to the book. Back in 1978, when I was traveling around the country doing interviews for my biography, Memory Babe, there was a lot going on in the Kerouac realm. New Kerouac biographies were in the works by both Dennis McNally and the team of Barry Gifford and Larry Lee. But the hottest action was going on down in Hollywood. The filming of Carolyn Cassidy's memoir, Heartbeat, with such stars as Nick Nolte, Sissy Spacek, and John Hurd. I counted myself lucky to be a friend of Carolyn's, and through her I wangled an invitation to the set down in Culver City in early October of that year. I had just missed seeing my new friend Jan Kerouac, Jack's daughter there. I had also managed to connect her and Carolyn so that Jan got a bit part in the film, a part that was unbelievably left on the cutting room floor. They cut it out of the movie. Jan was working on a memoir too, as were Jack's ex-wives, Edie Parker and Joan Haverty, as well as his quantum girlfriends, Joyce Johnson and Helen Weaver. The women were surfacing, though it would be almost two more decades before they got their due in Brenda Knight's landmark book, Women of the Beat Generation, as well as Richard Peabody's lesser known, but equally important, A Different Beat. One woman had notably been absent from all this neo-beat hullabaloo. The woman every Kerouac fan knew as Mary Lou from On the Road, Lou Ann Henderson Cassidy. No one had heard from her in a long time. No one seemed to know where to find her. Then one day, while I was still out in California, I got a call from Larry Lee. Larry deserves remembering here. A Peabody Award-winning journalist for KRON Television in the Bay Area, he was one of the first prominent gay men in San Francisco to die from that epidemic that would take so many thousands of lives out here, out there. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit, but I tell a little bit about Larry. Um, Larry called me around the middle of October. Just as I was getting set to return to my mother's house in a Chicago suburb named Lyons, which was my home base at that time, the place where I was finally beginning to turn years of research into the thousands of lines of inked typeface that would eventually become Memory Babe. I know where Luann is, Larry told me. Would you like to know? Was the Pope Catholic? Luann, as it turned out, was at that very moment in San Francisco General Hospital. As much as I wanted to interview her, she was in no condition to endure a barrage of questions while I ran a tape recorder on her. But she could receive visitors, I was told. Larry may have spoken to her about me. I don't remember. I had also recently interviewed her good friend, Al Hinkle, who's Big Ed Dunkel in, on the road. That might have helped, too. 
I don't remember all the steps exactly, but she consented to see me, and I got down to San Francisco General as fast as my rental car would carry me. I'll skip a little bit about the hospital here. It's a, in some, it's a poor hospital. For those of you down here who don't know it, but it's, you can imagine it's a place where gang members are you know, laid out in the hallway there. Um, you don't go to San Francisco General if you have money. I entered Luann's hospital room not knowing what I would find. Those years of cross-country travel and hundreds of interviews had been a dizzying roller coaster. Meeting crazy alcoholic barroom bruisers who threatened my life and a few poets who threatened my life too, as well as some of the loveliest, sweetest people in the world, people who were ready to do anything to help someone, me, write the truth about their friend and or relative, Jack Kerouac. What I saw was a large, larger than I had expected, beautiful 40-ish woman with a full head of blonde curls in a blue hospital gown with one hand swathed completely in white bandages, giving me the softest, kindest, most understanding smile I'd seen in a long, long time. She was absolutely radiant, beaming at me with an expression of gentleness and intelligence that reminded me of various Marys I had seen in the Catholic churches of my boyhood. I I think I was a little in love with her before she even spoke. I told her who I was, that I wanted to write, <clears throat> that I wanted to talk to her about Jack Kerouac for the book I was writing. Then a look of sadness crossed her face, and she told me that too many people wanted to learn about her life and the lives of her friends, but it didn't seem like anybody really wanted to know why she and her friends had done the things they did. To her, the most important thing was finding out why people acted in certain ways. Once you understood them, she felt their actions <coughs> almost always made perfect sense. They stopped being freaks or criminals or outcasts or whatever else the world had labeled them as, and they became instead someone like yourself, a friend. It baffled her, it truly did, that so many writers, as well as the legions of beat Trekkies that were beginning to hit the roads of America, were smitten by the flashy and often trashy surface of the beat movement, but it failed to understand, actually seemed incapable of understanding, that the beats were ordinary people just as they were. Luann told me that she had recently visited the set of Carolyn's movie, Heartbeat, and that she was enormously disappointed by what she had seen there. The first thing she saw in a scene being filmed was Anne Dusenberry, the actress who was playing her, supposedly peeing in a washbowl and then calling for a towel. I wasn't a slob, Luann objected, and besides, there's no need to show something like that. There's no redeeming value in that. <clears throat> Then she watched the filming of a scene where Sissy Spacek, playing Carolyn Cassidy, comes into a hotel room in Denver and acts so indignant to find Neil, Nolte, Luann, and Allen Ginsberg, Ray Sharkey, all in bed together. What did she have to be indignant about, Luann asked me. After all, Neil was my husband, not hers yet. Luann winked at me, and a wry smile crossed her face. I was beginning to get the sense that she was a bit of a card, as they used to say. For the past few months, I had been spending quite a bit of time with Carolyn Cassidy. I liked Carolyn, but she could be a bit pompous and ponderous with her lectures on Edgar Cayce, karmic debts, and reincarnation. Carolyn did not have much of a sense of humor, and not at all the sort of quick humor that Luann had. Luann told me more about the reenactment of that infamous three-way sex scene in Heartbeat. She felt the director, John Byram, had done his best to make it seem as tawdry and kinky as possible. When the three of us went to bed together, Luann said, Neil always used to be in the middle, and Alan and I would be on either side of him. The two or three times we all actually had sex together, it was very nice. She smiled again at me, not the wry smile, but almost the Mother Mary smile again. There was nothing obscene about the sex we had with each other, nothing you couldn't show on a screen or that you'd need more than a PG-13 rating for, she averred. Of course, she won me over that quickly. I had never known any women like Luann, who could talk so easily about sex and yet also make it seem so natural and healthy, nothing to be ashamed of or to make a big deal about at all. She was as at ease talking about sex as she was talking about anything else in her life. 
Remember, this was a good two decades before we had a program like Sex in the City. And always, everything, even the painful stuff, was conveyed with her irrepressible sense of humor. She told me a story I had never heard, that when she had come to New York with Neil in 1949, and then he turned around and wanted to drag her right back to the West Coast, she figured out a way to thwart him. She loved New York, and she was starting to love Jack Kerouac at the same time. And she wanted to stay in the Big Apple at least a while longer. Ginsburg, too, didn't want Neil running off so fast. So she and Alan announced their plans to live together in New York, and Alan was going to go straight. She let out a big laugh before she continued with the story. Our real motive, she confided, was to make Neil jealous, because he'd never want to lose Alan and me to each other. He'd be back east in two days if he ever thought, if he really thought, if we ever really did that. The plan fell through, she said, only because Alan was less than keen about actually trying to become her lover. Nick Nolte didn't seem like anything like Neil to her. Neil moved much faster than Nick Nolte, she said. When I met Neil, he had six books under one arm, a pool cue in the other hand, and started necking with me at the same time. A whole flood of memories came back to her. I was trying to take notes, but it was hard for me to keep up. Suddenly she was living back in those days. Names of people were coming back to her hot and fast. She told me about three guys standing up at her wedding to Neil, Bill Thompson, Jim Holmes, and Jimmy Penoff. She was only 15, and her mom consented in order to get her out of the house, where Luann was having a lot of problems with her stepfather and had become rebellious, more than her mom could handle. She laughed about Bill Thompson, one of Neil's rivals in the local pool hall gang, a guy who fancied himself as much a ladies' man as Neil. Bill wouldn't get out of their room on their wedding night. He wanted to share in the honeymoon. Again, she laughed at one of her memories, how she had to kick Thompson out of the honeymoon suite, which was just a room Neil had rented in a private house, and where she worried that their noisy lovemaking that night kept the other residents up. Luann's eyes sparkled when she talked about Neil. She said Neil was always reading to her. She said he always wanted her back, that she didn't force herself on him, as Carolyn always claimed. Then she went into a reverie. She was thinking of Neil's letters, and her eyes got a little moist and unfocused. It was as if she left the hospital room with me for a few moments, her spirit traveling back decades and across a thousand miles of continent as if she were being hit by waves of bittersweet pain, thinking of something that was once too beautiful and way too beautiful to lose. He wrote me the most marvelous love letters, she said finally. It was when he had just come to San Francisco and I was still in Denver, and he wanted me back in his life. He told me that he was a rudderless ship without me and other lovely things like that. The things he wrote overwhelmed me. But it was the battle with Carolyn that obsessed her that afternoon in the hospital, a battle she had long ago lost, a defeat which the making of the movie now seemed to confirm and memorialize for all time. Carolyn was a woman to me, Luann pleaded for my sympathy. What chance did I have? I was 16 and she was in her 20s. Carolyn's making herself look good in this movie. She portrays herself as this beautiful and sophisticated woman, this siren that two brilliant and experienced men fell madly in love with. That's not the way it was at all. Carolyn had merely got herself pregnant. She went after Carolyn in a way that I would learn was not characteristic of her. Luann was usually the most forgiving of people. She was also known for being gracious. It may have been her current situation, being sick and helpless in a hospital bed, while Carolyn romped with movie stars and ate at glamorous five-star restaurants down in Hollywood. Luann was almost penniless at the time, though I didn't know it then. It may also have been, as her daughter later pointed out to me, the bad temper that sometimes accompanied Luann's coming down off her many medications. Carolyn and Neil weren't making it together, Luann said. Only a short time after they got married, the sex had stopped. It was that simple. That's why he was so desperate to get me back. We talked for a while more until she started to tire. I was trying to get as much information as I could from her, but this wasn't the sort of full interview I had wanted. She didn't know when she would be out of the hospital, and I didn't have the money to stay in San Francisco much longer. I figured whatever I got from her that day was all I was going to get. She told me I'd have to go. She needed her rest. 
When you come back, I'll buy you lunch, she told me, batting her eyelashes at me. I couldn't believe it. She was flirting with me. Mildly, it's true, but still flirting. Then we can sit in the park and hold hands. I was 20 years younger than she, but completely smitten. She was beautiful, she was clearly wounded, and she was unbelievably charming. Then we'll have something to look forward to, I said. I must have looked like a puppy dog in love. She told me she needed some candy and a pack of Winstons, and I set off on the run for the commissary. It's kind of amazing to look back and remember that in the 1970s you could still buy cigarettes in a hospital. For all I know, they even had a lounge for patients where Luann could have smoked them. In any case, I returned in a jiffy and handed her the Winstons and the three candy bars she'd requested. Thanks, honey, she said. I was rewarded by the warm, glowing smile of a well-loved woman. It was clear she was used to attention from men, and she still liked it. Something about her expression reminded me of a purring cat the visual equivalent of a cat's purr. I extended my hand to her, still a Midwesterner, I was ready to part with a handshake. But she grabbed my hand with both her good hand and the bandaged one and gave me a loving squeeze. Get well soon, I said, trying to convey a little burst of healing energy in her direction. I was no longer thinking of my much sought after interview. I just wanted her to be well, to be happy. The fact is, she had charmed the socks off me. No mean feat for a middle-aged woman with no makeup, a bandaged hand, and dressed in a baggy hospital gown. I left the room with her oodles of charisma trailing after me, feeling as if I had just been granted a meeting with Hedy Lamar or Lana Turner. And that's where I'll stop this part. And I want to... Uh, to read you a little bit of Luann's interview. Um, let me take a swig of water here. This is the part uh, of the story. You can actually read this book side by side with On the Road, and some people have suggested to me they, would, they might want to do that because you, know, you can read the novel and then you can read the, the exact same incident, but as told from Luann's point of view. So this is the part of the story. Um, where Jack and Neil and Luann have just made this wonderful cross-country trip from New York to California. And Jack is ecstatic because he's been on the road with his hero, Neil Cassidy. Um, they're heading to San Francisco, which is his mythical city. And he's imagining he's going to have all these great adventures with Neil uh, when he gets there. And as soon as they get to San Francisco, uh, Neil drops... Jack and Luann off on a street corner and just abandons them. So, oh, I got to go back to my wife Carolyn now. Bye bye, guys. And of course, they have no money at all. They're destitute. They have no money in their pockets. And this man that he loves, Jack loves, has just totally abandoned him, just left him to his own devices on a street corner. So, Jack is, is devastated. And Luann tells the story of um, what happened. So, I'm going to read a, a page or two from the interview where she's recounting that. It's about the middle of On the Road, if you're ever looking for it. From the moment, this is Luann speaking. <clears throat> From the moment we got into San Francisco, Neil was looking for some place where he could drop us off. As we're driving along, Neil says, well, where do you want to go? And I looked at Jack, and Jack looked at me, and there was no place for us to go. The only thing I could think of was the hotel I had stayed in when I was here before. So I said, I guess O'Farrell Street... That was just what Neil wanted to hear. Fine, fine, he says. Oh, that's great, that Blackstone Hotel. Fantastic. <laughs> and then when we got there, Jack asked me, have you got any money? And I says, no, I haven't got any money. You know we haven't had any money for days. And he said, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I don't know whether I can or not, but once before, the manager of this hotel had let me stay, and then I paid him later. So I told Jack, all I can do is try, keep your fingers crossed, and I'll go find out. So I went in and talked to the manager, and luckily at least, we got a place to sleep. We got the room, and then I took him immediately over to that girl's house to see about getting us some food, because we hadn't eaten anything either. Neil was going home. He knew Carolyn would have some food. So I got us some food, and after that we were just sort of floating. Like I said, we would just stay in the room there for three or four days at a time, not knowing what else to do or where to go or anything. 
I mean, had I been a little older, I think I might have handled the situation better. But I was in a rather confused state by that time myself. I knew that I had created a lot of these problems because I had allowed myself to get involved with Neil again. My feelings for Jack were deep, and they were honest. But Jack and I didn't have anything to build on. We didn't have anything to hang on to. We didn't have anything, period. Let's put it that way. And even though we could lay there at night and talk about being together forever and talk about marriage, we both really knew, I guess, that we were just talking. Because how were we going to start a life together unless Jack had taken the initiative and said, well, I'll wire home and get some money and we'll both go back to New York. But it was as though he was worse off than I was. He really was. He was the most lost person I had ever seen. Since I first met him, he'd always seemed at odd ends, like he had nothing to do in the world, nothing except right, of course. But now he just seemed at a total loss about everything. It's the first time I've ever mentioned this to anybody. But the first night after Neil left, Jack laid in my arms and cried like a baby. He really did. He was really, really desolated and hurt. We had some pretty long, deep talks. We thought we had everything sorted out. Of course, then morning would come and we'd be faced with another day of, where are we going to eat? And was the manager going to throw us out? And it didn't seem like Jack had any plan at all. <clears throat> It was like he was kind of waiting for me to do something. At times like this, he could be completely passive and just let other people decide what was going to happen. But especially right then, I needed someone to say, okay now, let's take some action. I would have worked with him and done whatever there was to do, but I also needed someone to encourage me and give me confidence that we could get out of this mess. But like I said, Jack was in really worse shape than I was. Coming back to San Francisco had turned Jack's whole world upside down. He wondered why he had made the trip even, what had gotten into him, what had made him so excited to make this mad trip out to the coast. Here he was, penniless and friendless, or so he felt, and for what? He was questioning every single thing in his life. It was like I wasn't even there, like I wasn't the same girl that I was before, the girl he'd been so attracted to, the beautiful little sharp chick with all the golden ringlets that drove all those Columbia guys crazy. I had lost some of my appeal for Jack, just as San Francisco had when the supercharger was no longer behind us. And that's where I will quit. So, so I'll be happy to take questions about anything that you want to ask about. Either the book or Kerouac or whatever. Yeah, back there. How are you? Oh, uh, Luann, uh, what uh, uh, jazz club did she run? It was called the Pink Elephant. And it was right across from the jazz workshop, I was told. I have several questions. Okay. Um, not very far into On the Road, there's this sentence that Luann was awfully dumb and capable of doing horrible things. <laughs> Did she have any specific reaction to that line? Well, she, uh, she was upset by a lot of things in the book that she said were not true, not accurate. She said she called him on a lot of things. Um, I think specifically he was referring to, um, and she tells this story in detail. Um, uh, you know, she was this fifth, well, 16 years old when they got to New York. But Neil was uh, capable of, of using people in a, in a very ruthless way and they needed money and she had just gotten a job at a bakery for you know whatever 50 cents an hour they weren't gonna she wasn't gonna make enough money working at the bakery so one day here's this sweet 16 year old kid from Denver setting out for work and Neil tells her to rob the cash register he says, when you come home tonight, I want you to have a, you know, a fistful of cash that you took out of the cash register. And she, she does it, and she's caught. And the, woman, the boss woman doesn't call the police, but fires her on the spot. And Luann comes home, and as she describes it in the book, she's almost in an altered state. I mean, I guess basically it was just too much for her being 16 years old to handle. And she describes herself like sitting out on a bench in the snow near Columbia and just not being able to even move until some Kerouac or somebody came and got her. And eventually, um, she and Neil get an apartment in New Jersey, and then they're sort of happy for a little while again. And then for some reason, but she says she started having these spells where she would go into this sort of altered state of just spacing out, you know, whether it was related to this whole thing of 
because you know her father was a policeman. I mean, here she she was she was caught and she could have gone to jail for you know this robbery, and whether whether all of that was weighing on her mind, but she started like spacing out, going into this sort of altered state. And then one day Neil comes home from work and she knew he was Neil was terrified of police pe- policemen because he had committed so many crimes. He got to New York by stealing her uncle's car, uh, and one day he comes home from work parking cars and she tells him the cops were here, Neil. The cops weren't there, and and she she says to this day she never really knew why she said that, um, but she knew it was going to scare him, and it scared the hell out of him, and he went running off to Connecticut and ran back to Denver, and so that's one of the things Kerouac's referring to when he says she was capable of doing terrible things, that you know she scared his buddy, uh, Neil, but of course Neil he, she, he, Jack doesn't give you her side of it that Neil scared the hell out of her by almost getting her sent to prison. And that's true of a lot of the book, you know, that Jack really gives one side of things. It's the same thing when Jack narrates this story about getting abandoned and let, and being uh, left in a, a hotel room with Luann, he says the reason that, that he split up with her is, is that she went out whoring. He said, I saw her one day getting into a car with a sailor and a wad of cash and I knew she was a whore and so I left her. He doesn't say anything about the fact that he was crying in her arms and he couldn't get out of bed to go get a job and rent an apartment. You know, so he, he totally skews the story, and you know, so she becomes the villain. And I think that was the, those were sort of the sort of things she called him on. Um, and it, so I think that one of the valuable things about this book is you really get a sense of that there was a whole other story that Jack was leaving out. You know, in his quest to build this heroic image for himself and Neil. Uh, and also. Towards the end of Barry Gifford's uh, oral bio, Jack's book, yeah, Luann, uh, they're trying to get some like historical perspective, at least at that time, on, on the road. And she says that she was shocked when she found out that On the Road had become a model for a lot of young people. And mm-hmm. some chick had come to see her. Mm-hmm saying that they were going to reenact the New York to San Francisco right. or something. And she said, you know, I didn't care what they did, but here's, here's these well-heeled young people with money who, who want to drive across the country at 130 miles an hour and stuff. And starve to death and freeze to death. And, yeah. and your, um, in your lengthy interview for uh, Memory Babe, and I guess what's in here, does she address that? Oh yeah, she yeah, she talks about the fact that yeah, uh, you know that that it, w- it amazed her that people want to relive because she said for her it was it was suffering. You know they were poor. They were, they were driving a car without a heater through freezing plains and you know and, and starving to death and having to steal food and yeah she she thought it was uh, kind of ridiculous that people wanted to that people. But again, it's the thing the question she said the thing she says to me at the beginning. People need to know why we did the things we did. They they just want to imitate us, but they don't understand that we, we you know we had certain goals. We were trying to start a life together we were you know we maybe we stole something maybe we did this but it was all with the purpose neil was going to go to college he was going to study at columbia he was going to become a writer we had we had real goals we were heading toward it wasn't just let's go out riding through the plains and freeze our asses off for fun you know uh, yeah so you know she does talk about it in the book in the interview yeah now do you think that maybe under another set of circumstances another set of breaks or whatever that uh, that Cassidy could have uh, become a major writer? Well, I think the problem was that he was never able to sit down and concentrate. Some people have uh, suggested maybe he had ADD or something. I don't know. But, you know, he certainly had a tremendous intellect. He certainly had a tremendous intellect. And he had a great gift with words, too. Uh, from the letters of his that survived, they're really interesting documents. Uh, the guy could write, but I think the problem is, you know, uh, and as she says in the book, she thought he had, you know, enough intelligence that he could have gotten uh, admitted to Columbia had he pursued it, uh, even without a high school diploma, because there were, there were ways that he could have taken special exams. Um, but I think the problem with Neil was he just was never able to really, you know, he couldn't sit down for the hours. That's what he admired Jack for, you know. They, the whole thing she talks about in this book is that they each admired the other because Jack wished he could be, you know, Jack was awkward as hell. He couldn't deal with being with women. He was so awkward. Even though he was handsome, he couldn't deal with talking to women. And he admired the hell out of Neil that Neil could just pick up women so fast and talk to any woman. And, and whereas Neil admired Jack for the ability that Jack could actually sit down for 10 hours a day and type and he couldn't do that you know had he been able to do that then i think he could have become a writer 
And one of the interesting things that she says in this book is, you know, that they really didn't like each other that much. When they first met, they were very distrustful of each other. And, um, and Jack actually even hints at that in On the Road where he says, we tiptoed around each other. Because you have to realize they came from very different backgrounds. I mean, Jack, as I've pointed out, was really bought into the system. He was a, another good Catholic boy from Lowell, Massachusetts, who went to Columbia to, on a football scholarship to please his parents, to get the education, to get a good job, make a good living. Neil Cassidy was never part of the system at all. His mother ran off, you know, when he was two or three years old. His father was a wino stumble bum on the, the streets of Denver. He was uh, totally on his own from five years old, you know, stealing change off the news boxes, uh, having sex when he was 12 years old, stealing cars and when he was 13, uh, going to reformatories and a penitentiary before he was 18. Um, this was a, this was a, 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 as he called, Jack calls him, a jail kid. He had no investment in the system at all. When these two guys met each other, they were, they were diametrically opposite. They were in awe of each other. They both, you know, each one knew the other was good looking. Each one knew the other was intelligent. Each one knew the other was athletic. Um, so they tiptoed around each other, but it was like kind of, you know, can I trust this guy? I don't know if I can trust him. And it was Luann who loved both of them. She loved both of them. And they loved. They both loved her, and so she was able to tell Jack about Neil. This is what's you know. This is what Neil is really about. This he's a jail kid, but he's you know got a great intellect, and he does care about people. And she'd go to Neil, and she'd say, "Well, Jack looks like the Catholic mama's boy, but he really wants to experience life, and he's got great questions." And she she interested them in each other and pulled them close enough together to where they really could form a friendship. And of course, that without that friendship, there wouldn't have been the book on the road. And without the book on the road, there might not have been a beat generation. And you can take it from there, you know. So anybody else? Any other questions? You know that hotel or the uh, museum that they have now in front of the... Uh, the Beat Museum? Yeah. Did you, they, got, they brought the car that they used in the movie. Yeah. And he's making money off it now. He charges people twenty dollars to get their picture taken in the in the car, which kind of bugs me a little bit. But it was kind of neat to see that car. It is neat to see the car. That's what they were hurtling around the country, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, that's not the exact car, you understand. No. That was the car used in the movie. Yeah, the 49 Hudson, yeah. And the cars that they rent for movies are usually perfect looking. Yeah, and yeah. Neil Cassidy would not have been driving a perfect Well, except he bought it new, except he did buy it new. That, yeah, when he, he, when he got his termination pay from the railroad or whatever, instead of taking care of Carolyn, he went out and bought the new Hudson and took off. So it was a brand new car. But it probably didn't look good after he'd driven it for two, two months or something. But anyway. Um, yeah, back there. Well, I mean, I, I always do other things. I've been writing poetry all my life and, and many other things, and I'm now working on a major biography of Entezaki Shange, the black woman writer who wrote for colored girls who considered suicide when the rainbow is enough, and I think was a pioneer of black women's writing and never really given the credit for it. So I'm writing her biography right now. I bet you're doing that for your son, Peter. Well, whatever. Anybody else? All right, well, thank you for coming. And Oh, a question back there, yeah. You said your interviews, you have them digitized? Yes, yeah, I paid to, after I won the lawsuit, I paid to have them digitized because the tapes were deteriorating. They'd been locked up all those years and were, had not been taken care of. Are they only available in archive? Are they available at all? There, yeah, part of the win my winning of the lawsuit was to have to open the archive again. So if you go to UMass Lowell, yes, you're allowed to listen to them now. I, I won that in the lawsuit. <laughs> Have the Sampuses <coughs> tried anything more to restrict you? I mean, do they keep up their campaign? Well, you know, they've been proven to have forged Kerouac's mother's will, so they're they're deeply embattled in trying to hold on to the estate right now because two court rulings have said they they forged the will. So uh, I think uh, they're too, they're tied up with that right now. With Jan dead, what benefit is there other than kind of a pyrrhic victory? Well. Oh, it's a long story. Maybe we should talk afterward because I, I hate to have to explain the whole lawsuit to this whole audience here, but Kerouac's estate has been, been embattled for a long time and it all revolves around the Sampas family forging Jack Kerouac's mother's will. And Jan, 
Do you really want to hear this story? My dad blasted Greek in-laws. <laughs> All right, if, if, uh, you'll get a three-minute summation of the Kerouac lawsuit, but um, Jack Kerouac, the only woman in his life, well, you'll learn a little bit about Kerouac as well. The only woman that he really was attached to his entire life was his mother, uh, who controlled him with an iron fist. He referred to her at times, he said, my mother is a descendant of Napoleon. And uh, he meant that literally, that she just controlled him with an iron fist. And when uh, his mother had a stroke, and, th and that's the reason why his marriages didn't last really, and why so many of his other relationships terminated, because his mother would get in the, in the middle of it. She didn't want another woman in Jack's life. And um, so his mother had a stroke in 1966 and um, was paralyzed and couldn't take care of herself. And she would not allow Jack to put her in a nursing home. She said to Jack, you've got to take care of me at home. And here's the king of the beats who, you know, goes out on these long binges and stuff. I mean, he couldn't see himself staying home every day changing bedpans. And so he didn't know what to do. He was desperate. And he went to see, um, he had a boyhood friend named Sammy Sampas, who was a Greek kid who was a poet, who was the first kid in Lowell identified as a poet because it was hard being a poet in Lowell. It, I mean, it was a working class mill town where if you said you were a poet, they'd call you fag. Uh, and there was this very brave young Greek kid who said he was a poet and gave Jack Kerouac the courage to say he was a poet. Um, and so, um, but Sammy died in World War II. It was a big Greek family. And one of, the, one of the people was an older sister who had never married, Stella Sampas. Uh, and Jack went to see her and said, you know, Stella, would you take care of my mother? And Stella, who had never married and was still a virgin, said, you know, I'm a good Greek girl. Well, she was 55 or something. I'd, I'd, I'll take care of your mother, but you have to marry me, Jackie. <laughs> so he married this woman to take care of his mother. Uh, it was a total disaster because she didn't know anything about... Um, what he was like. You know, she remembered just kind of this quiet boy from high school, and now he was a total madman. I mean, he was, you know, drunken, wild character. Uh, and so she didn't know what to do with him, because, I mean, he'd go out on these binges, and so she would hide his clothes, and he'd go out in his pajamas, and then she, she would uh, take his shoes away, um, so he'd go out in his slippers, and he, he would tell his friends his shoe size. So the, the thing was, he'd come running out of the house in his slippers, jump in the car, and they'd have the Tom McCann's eight and a half triple E waiting for him, you know. Somebody said he had feet like an orangutan. They were going to triple that they were that wide. But anyway, um, so uh, it did, wasn't working out. He tried to divorce her, but he didn't live long enough. He was, but at the same time, he was killing himself with alcohol cirrhosis. Uh, and he, he started to file a divorce, but he didn't live long enough for the divorce to go through. Uh, but he had already changed the will and left everything to his mother, who was paralyzed and in bed. And um, uh, so when he died, um, he had one, there was, well, there was Jan, he had a daughter, and then his sister, who was dead, had a, one son, Paul Blake Jr., and um, the Sampuses, um, they just held on to the old lady who was paralyzed, and, and in fact, the nephew came to try to take care of, to take charge of her, and they ran him off with the police. And when the old lady, Jack's mother, died, they wrote a will, and, and they left everything to themselves, because they knew this stuff was going to be hugely valuable. And they didn't tell the two grandchildren that their grandmother had died. And it was only many years later that Jan saw the will and she said, hey, my grandmother's name is misspelled on this will. It was misspelled. They misspelled the name. Uh, and so she filed a lawsuit against them in 1994, uh, at which point Stella had died, but they were, they were selling off Jack's... One of the great crimes they've done is to sell Jack's papers and manuscripts all over the world. I mean, they've just broken up that archive, which should have been in one place for people to study because they could get so much money. Kerouac is so collectible. He's like James Dean or Marilyn Monroe. People want anything that he's touched. They pay $10,000 for one of his little breast pocket notebooks and stuff like that. Um, and so Jan wanted to stop that. She was dying of kidney failure, and she wanted to stop that selling off. She filed a lawsuit, but the problem at that point was that they were the Sampuses, the bad guys, were and, and their family, by the way, ran all the vice in Lowell. They were they were Greek mafia in Lowell. They ran the bookie joints, prostitution, all that stuff in Lowell. So they knew what they were doing when it came to stealing estates, um, and they uh, they had a lot of money. The, the Kerouac estate was worth thirty million dollars, so they had the best lawyers, and they fought Jan, and she died before it went to court. And then the nephew carried on the case with a, with a contingency lawyer 
for many years, and two years ago the ruling finally came down that the will's a forgery, and the Sampuses immediately took an appeal, and then last August the, the final ruling from the appellate court is the will is a forgery. The reason nothing has changed hands is Florida has one of the stupidest inheritance laws, probably engineered by all the gangsters who live in Florida, retire there, in the country, and that is that in Florida you can keep anything you inherit, including stolen property, if nobody complains within two years. Uh, and so Stella left everything to her brothers and sisters in 1990. Jan didn't see the forged will till 1994. That two-year period had expired. And so the Sampus is right now, even though the, the, the state, Kerouac State has been proven to be stolen property, uh, are keeping it under that Florida inheritance law. And so now the nephew, Jack's nephew, who carried the suit on for Jan, uh, is trying to get a, a, he's got a contingency lawyer and they're trying to find a federal law that would overcome that, that crazy Florida state law so that he could, re he's, he's living poorly with his son and his grandchildren in a trailer in Arizona, and he's the real blood relative, Jack's sister's son, um, and, and living in, in poverty and starvation while these people are sitting out in a state that generates $5 million a year, which they stole, which we now know has been proven in court that they stole. Uh, so that's the Kerouac estate story. Anyway. Uh, he started hemorrhaging at home, and they rushed him to St. Anthony's Hospital, and they gave him 40 transfusions, and he just bled out. No, he was living in St. Petersburg, Florida. So all the litigation has been in Florida. Um, yeah, no, he, he moved his mother because she was sick. They moved her to where it was warm, to St. Petersburg, Florida. That's where he died and where she died, too, four years later. Yeah. Wait, no, his mom died four years later. Yeah, but they, I said they both died in St. Petersburg. Yeah. Kerouac in 69 and the mother in 73. What was the name of the hospital? St. Anthony's Hospital. Still there in St. Petersburg. He, I mean, he, he destroyed his liver with, with so much. He was drinking a, a quart of whiskey and 25 beers a day. Uh, and so uh, the liver creates the material in your body that clots your blood. So if your liver is destroyed once you start to hemorrhage your blood you never stop bleeding because you don't have any clotting material so that's basically what happened and, and you know, he started esophageal hemorrhaging and they kept pouring blood into him and it just kept coming coming out again you know and about 24 hours later he was dead the author of memory babe calls it the classic drunkard's death yeah well it is her hemorrhaging esophageal varices are the class is the classic drunkard's death and he wanted to die he said that very clearly I want to be safe in heaven dead, he said. Well, he also said that uh, being Catholic, I cannot commit suicide, therefore I want to trick myself. Yeah, he somehow felt that uh, it wasn't a moral, shooting yourself was a mortal sin, but drinking yourself was a good Catholic tradition, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, in strict Roman Catholicism, at least, if you commit suicide, you can't be buried in consecration. Right, oh yeah, oh yeah, it's a moral. Charles Boyer is at Holy Cross. Maybe they don't know he was a suicide. Well, anyway. Well, if there aren't any more questions, I just want to say thank you so much again uh, to Gerald and let you guys know that his books, as well as many of Kerouac's books, are up in front kind of for sale. He's going to be sticking around. Yes, I'm here to sign books. I've even got a few copies of my book on Jan Kerouac, so here I am. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.